Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 73 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with Dr. Alice Mandel, a professor of Biblical and Ancient Near Eastern Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Mandel teaches courses in Biblical Literature, Northwest Semitics, the History of the Ancient Levant, and Sociolinguistic Approaches to the Study of Writing. She is currently completing her book manuscript, Cuneiform Culture and the Ancestors of Hebrew. This work is part of Seth Sanders' new series for Rutledge, The Ancient World, New Discoveries in Religion and Language from the Biblical and Near Eastern World. She also analyzes scribal practices in the Canaanite Amarna letters using sociolinguistic theory. This week's episode is a bit more casual and conversational, and so we ended up not digging into her scholarly work as much as I normally try to do on the show. We mainly discuss the importance of mentors to a student's graduate school journey, how COVID-19 affected both the student's experience and creativity, and whether biblical studies scholars actually enjoy media reception of their field. I hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Off we go then. I just want to thank you for joining me this morning. And I want to start you off with what I hope is going to be like a really softball question, which is just when did you get into the love of and the study of ancient history and classics? Like, was this when you were young or did you have to come to it a bit later? I was a modern language person and I started really doing a lot of modern Hebrew and modern Arabic. And I was also at UCLA. So I was an undergraduate. It was a little odd because my day job was to work for the Cuneiform Digital Library Initiative. But the stuff I was really doing was um, classical Hebrew, but with a focus mainly on like modern Israeli Hebrew. And I started doing a lot of Arabic. And I was a Fulbrighter in Cairo at the CASA Center for Arabic Study Abroad. And then I just applied for Near Eastern Studies, ancient Middle East programs to do Bible. I don't know why I did that, but I also loved that too. So I kind of like, was figuring out one thing. And I'm like, cool, if I don't get into PhD programs, then I'm going to go to Syria and just keep going because they had a second year. So it was kind of like, I loved both the, the ancient kind of language and um, material cultural aspect of the Middle East, but I also really loved like contemporary politics and literature. So I had like these different ways that my life could go. And I was just open to all of it. And then I got into PhD programs and I just 
follow that door? A lot of people really, I'm noticing a trend the more I, I talk to people, there are, there's no right way to get into any sort of ancient field. There's just, I did a thing and somehow it led me to whatever. And so I feel like getting in through linguistics is, is really common actually, because a lot of people just discover that they like either a, a modern foreign language or an ancient one. And they're like, yeah, this is cool. I'm going to keep doing this. But what was it about Hebrew and Arabic? Because that's a, you know, they're very different, very hard. So it's like when thinking of like what children sort of take in the high school or whatever, when you're offered like you can take your French class or your Spanish class or maybe are you going to be adventurous and take your Chinese class? I remember when I talked about I, I wanted to be a baby Egyptologist when I was like 12 and I remember telling people oh I want to go to Egypt and people were like oh you have to learn Arabic no that's so hard and difficult why would you like do that to yourself do something else so like did you find that people were kind of questioning these languages because they seemed like harder quote-unquote or were they like no nah, that's cool well I mean I was you know an undergraduate at UCLA and everyone there was just really cool and super supportive of kind of whatever I wanted to do which was great I I did study abroad in Israel and I did have Akkadian and Akkadian usually it's the science system that trips people up it's you know the grammar is like beautiful straightforward there's cool dialectal variation and stuff but the science system was what gets people so I think once I kind of had studied a more rigorous writing system, Hebrew and Arabic. It's These are contemporary spoken languages. There's classical Arabic, which has kind of a, a more complex grammar. So it didn't phase me out. And I also really loved the living aspect of language. I love dialect studies. Dialectology is really cool. I was at Princeton for a little while and I did a little bit of Judeo-Arabic focusing on Egyptian uh, kind of Arabic used by Jewish and Karaite communities. And so the living aspect of language I loved and then the question is like, why did I go to the ancient world where I don't have that? I don't know. That's the question. It's like, why did you do that, Alice? That was just probably not the right call. I mean, it's interesting when you get into it because, you you know, when you get in this like reflective mood and you're like, hmm, how did I get to where I am? What did I, what did I make that decision? I don't know. Have you noticed like a lot of times it seems quite arbitrary looking back where you're like, oh okay, I guess I made that one decision and it sort of led me here. And I didn't know what I was getting myself into, but I just kind of said yes to a lot of things randomly. I am that person who gets into trouble with everybody because I just, I'm like, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's do it. Yeah. Which is just giving out also my Southern Californian, like, you know, English dialect. That's, I'm just, yeah, let's do this. We'll do it. And then I do it. And I'm also doing like 10,000 other things and it's crazy town. Um, so yeah, I'm an open doors person. And I think too, even, you know, professionally it's academia is an intellectual passion. It's pursuing a way it's, there's a lot of creativity and kind of artistry in it, but it's also just a profession. And I think part of what's really interesting and lovely about thinking about it that way is that you don't think take things personally. And when doors open, that means that they want you and you're a good fit. And then you just go in and you just figure it out. It kind of takes what we do and demystifies it, but it's a job. Yeah. I think that's important to remember because I, I know that I came up in a time where it was, I'm speaking like that was a very long time ago. It wasn't, but I feel like when I was going through college, it was very much 
to half the people, it was like a way of life, right? Where they were like, no, you need to eat, breathe, and sleep what you're doing and studying because you're, you're like marching on and you have to get into the PhD program and do this and do that. And then half the people were like, no, it's a passion, but I do have a life outside and I can do other things. So it's interesting. I feel like my path in undergrad, it feels a lot like I never knew how to say no to people. And I feel like there's a really big pressure to say yes because you're going to miss out on stuff or there's that pressure to say yes because, oh, but that whatever I'm saying yes to could lead to the big break I'm looking for. But I don't think that like something we don't really address then is like why you shouldn't always just say yes, because I feel like most people are going to say, yeah, 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 that's that's good advice to live by. Just say yes to everything. But that's not like the most healthy or productive thing so I wonder it like did you sort of ever get into that where maybe I it's bad to say yes to absolutely everything like did that put pressure on I think so it just depends on your your situation um and you know it's 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 kind of um it's like a 30 year (laughs) career journey process so first of all I'm very cautious about giving advice to people that have advisors because I'm not their advisor. You always talk to your advisor. So I always qualify anything I say, talk to your advisor, talk to your colleagues, talk to your peers. Those are the people that are your mentors. I'm not a mentor. But I think that sometimes the flip side of saying yes to everything is being afraid and not engaging in conferences, not engaging, not trying to publish, not asking people to read your things, being too perfectionist. And if you have a great idea and no one hears it, it's a great idea in a box. So I think there's a balance that can be very healthy. And this is where I think it's very important to have a cohort of friends and colleagues that know you, know your situation, also know about you personally, that know what you can handle, that know your pressure points, your stress points, that can give advice about how much energy you should be putting into different endeavors. Uh, One of the things that, you know, I experienced kind of transitioning from graduate school to early career scholarship is that you get asked to do a lot of things, but not everything counts for tenure. And the best way you can be a good advisor is to stick around, to keep your job, to keep a position at a university, keep your job, and to be there for your students for the next 10 years. That means that you need to prioritize the things that quote unquote count, which is unfortunate, but that's just the game. So in those situations, you do have to say no to certain things. Um, you have to prioritize how much energy you have and just say, listen, like this is the energy I have. You can always defer. That's one thing I've learned too. It's always possible to say, hey, this is a great opportunity. I can't do it now. Can I do it in a year? Or can I do it in six months? You know, are you flexible on the deadline? And that's something that I think we should all feel okay and empowered to do. Yeah, no, I think that's really, really valuable advice. Just because it's it's something we don't talk about enough, which is interesting in a in a space where I feel like academics are always having these kinds of conversations of you know what is going to get me to where I want to be at you know institution or whatever, or like how do I how do I get my research out there, but also how do I be a good educator? Like these are all things that are connected. But we don't seem to do the best at understanding how they're all connected, especially from the student side. We don't really get to see that. Am I allowed to ask you a question? Of course, of course. You just went through the grad process, the graduate kind of application process. Do you mind like sharing a little bit about it? Like what were the things that you found difficult with the way it's set up with the systems? Because that's something that, you know, there aren't that many schools, there aren't that many programs. And the times are changing. I'm always interested to hear what 
you know, people who have recently gone through the process think about it, about transparency, think about the application process, um, because you see kind of, you have a portal into many different programs, different faculties, different ways of doing things. So you have a bird's eye view into this process. And it's a big process. It's a very important process. It's kind of a gateway process that gets people in. So just do you mind sharing a little bit? Yeah, of course. And I'm, I hope my listeners will enjoy it as well. So I will caveat everything I'm about to say with, I am very unconventional in my methods because I knew that I had certain issues that other people wouldn't deal with. So I have math learning disabilities, had them since I was like six. So I am very bad at math, which makes me very afraid of things like the GRE. Now, I know that the GRE is becoming very optional uh, at a lot of places, but the types of programs I was looking for, there were several programs that did require it. And so me wanting to run as far away as possible from having to take this exam basically disqualified me from wanting to apply to a lot of programs, but also with the way that tuition is, and it's crazy because no one wants to pay for a master's, people will only pay for PhD, really. I decided pretty much the year after I graduated from undergrad in 2018 that I was going to work for a few years save some money, and then apply to only programs in Europe because it was going to be cheaper. And silly me, I thought it would be faster. So I ended up applying to uh, the University of Athens where I ended up doing my master's, but then I applied to some programs um, in the UK. And then I thought maybe about applying to at least one program uh, in the States, but then I just said no. It's... Like I did all the research into the application process here in the States and I just kind of came away from that saying, absolutely not. I declined to do this. It's not an enjoyable or easy process. So I was like, whatever. What's the difference? What was your experience in terms of like the requirements or time for the application and the other programs that were abroad or that were in Europe? Um, the time, at least, especially for Greece, uh, was a lot shorter because they had all the application materials online, like most places do, but theirs was really like, okay, fill out this two, three page application with your main info on it. And then they said, just send us official transcripts. And then they wanted like a statement of purpose. And then do they, I'm trying to remember what else they wanted. And then I think they wanted just like one more thing, but like I could essentially finish this application and granted that I had like everything else, I could send it off in like 20 minutes. The American programs definitely look like they would be a, a lot longer. But since I didn't actually apply to them, I don't know how long it would have taken me. The UK programs are a bit longer because you did need a bunch of the same stuff, but that still only took me like an hour maybe. Yeah. And then, I mean, and then the the process in which they did it is is different because... Like where here you send off your application and then you wait months, whatever the cycle comes around for acceptances. Theirs was pretty straightforward on their website. They basically just said, this is our deadline. And then we basically start choosing applicants. And it's a, and it was a small program too, because they capped it at like 25 to 30 people. So they were like, you're going to know pretty quickly. And so once that date hit, like came around, I only waited like a week and then I got an email saying, you know, oh, you've been accepted. A week turnaround? Yeah, it was like weird. It, it was like there, it was a, such a strange experience because I had to submit my application 
in like August or September, but then boom, you hear nothing until I think it was like mid February, late February or something. But then, yeah, like first week of March, second week of March, whatever it was, boom, I knew I was in. And I was like, oh. Well, congratulations. And also congratulations on your, you know, new kind of uh, venture. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So applications, I don't know how much they've changed since, you know, even in the past five years. But, um, yeah, I guess my experience with with European programs, at least, was it was it was very nice. It was easy. I didn't have to send GRE score. I didn't have to take the GRE. So it was like the perfect thing for me because I just avoided it. And then the joke was kind of on me because my program then had, you know, an economics course. And I was like, oh, crap. Well, this better not be hard because I was not prepared. Uh, and then it ended up being a political economy course. So then I was like, okay, this is this is easy. That That's fine. It's just, it's like learning the history of numbers, uh, not actually calculating. So I was very, very happy. That was very polite of you because you almost, you paused, you said, oh, it's been such a time since paused the past five years. And I'm thinking like, oh, I did this process in 2000. And like, it was like 2006. So that was very nice of you because you were just like, oh, let's, let's just pretend like it's been the past five years. Just like, yeah, no, like I applied to grad school from Cairo. <laughs> I know, I know it from my side because, you know, I'm faculty. So, and I'm, you know, part of this department and we were, we're, you know, ancient, you know, Middle Eastern studies, like there's different facets of it. So we, I see it from us. And then I, I talk to as many people as I can. This is why I'm asking questions too. I like to hear what I like to know what's going on today with students to understand because sometimes there's things we can do to make the process less horrible because right now it's kind of intense. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I love it. I, I love the open dialogue between, you know, professors and, and prospective students. And honestly, I'm going to try to go through the next pro- the next step in the grad process in the next, you know, four years here. I'd like to go back and get a PhD. Now, again, I'm kind of, I don't want to say it's not taking the easy way, but it's taking a different way because I'm still, I refuse to take the GRE. So I will be applying to European PhD programs, but I would like to go through that in the next four years or so. So, you know, it might change even then. So it'll be interesting to see. But I always talk to, you know, uh, friends who are applying to different grad programs now to see, you know, what is their experience? And I kind of keep that in the in the back of my mind. And I'm like, okay, well, am I going to encounter this when I eventually do it? But yeah, it's interesting. The process kind of mirrors itself just based on like what friends who like applied to grad school last year have said. And then like all the stuff that I'm doing in terms of preparation to seek out programs, look at them, figure out like who do I have to contact, what do I have to do. And actually that's the hardest part in the entire grad process. It's not even like the application part because that they just put all the requirements on the website and they're like, okay, do it. It's like knowing whether the program is actually a good fit. And I know that they always put the contact info of like, this is the department info or here, maybe this is the secretary of the program. Or even if you're lucky, you get like the email of the chair or, you know, the the person who does grad admissions. That's still kind of hard because they're busy and then they're also working with grad students. So I've had a lot of friends say, you know, it's not the most elegant of solutions to just slap a general contact and be like, well, if you have questions, go to this person who's clearly very busy answering all the questions and can't give you um, a lot of personal advice. So that's kind of what I'm hearing now. And that's kind of what I felt when I was applying to my master's program, because I definitely wanted to like, maybe find an email for a specific professor and talk to them first about 
their class or the program or something. And that's still something we don't really do. So that's a really interesting point because part of the, the challenge, I think, right, is to locate good fit programs and also to have your ear on the ground because sometimes programs aren't admitting, sometimes there's budget crunches, sometimes faculty are leaving, transitioning to different like programs and moving or like retiring. And that's stuff that's, you know, kind of more like, you know, like local knowledge. Um, and to my knowledge, again, like as someone who is like unplugged from this world, who's not in any form of social media, who just lives in like a little like scholastic cave, you know, with, you know, um, there's no like website where you can just click in and like, is there like a site kind of, you know, like there's Bible, excuse me, there's Bible jobs wiki, there's classics or archaeology wiki, there's like job wiki sites where every year it's applications for jobs. And like, you know, you can like go and look and it, people are updating it. So it's like users are updating it with real live, you know, data. So let's say you apply for jobs in classics, so like NYU or whatever, like Jewish studies, like whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly, you know, you apply and people are like, yes, we applied. And then like three months later, hey, we got like, I got a letter or my friend got a letter, like a shortlisted. And then everyone who doesn't have that letter knows they did not make the shortlist. And it's just very sad, but at least they know and I'm wondering, like, that would be such an amazing resource just to have, like, some sort of site where, you know, with, like, here, these are the 10, like, 20 programs that are accepting students, and these are the links to the website. And then people could just say, kind of like, hey, like, I got this, I got that, and just to exchange information, because that's part of what's hard about it as well. It is very much akin to the job application process, where there's a few number of slots, and, you know, like, you know, programs make lists, like they always, you know, certain people get in, there's wait lists, like it's the same similar process. And that doesn't exist for students on the student end of things. Yeah, I think it's true. And I and and I was having a similar conversation, honestly, with someone the other day. Now, it was about applying for jobs after getting out of school. But I think it. it I, I, I made a comment that it applies to getting into like grad programs as well, which is, you know, I wish that it weren't so much like when you go in for a job for a you know, job interview now. It's a lot of, you should ask us questions because we're trying to figure out if you're a good fit for our company or our school, our department, whatever it may be. And so there's always this pressure on you as the interviewee to be like, oh, okay, did I do my research into this company or into this school? Now I need to know what the right questions are to ask, which is like a lot and terrifying and oh my gosh. And we were saying, you know, I wish it was the other way around. If you're a good student, if you're, you know, someone who just finished a postdoc, if, if you're, if you're someone who's just had a lot of work experience, like there's this feeling that we were saying that was like, I know my worth, I know my skills and I know what I bring. And like, people don't talk about that or acknowledge that enough. Cause they're so busy trying to like get the thing. But we wish that it was almost like the other way around where we could interview them and be like, well, why should I come work for you? Like, I know what I bring, but like, you got to make it nice for us too. So I kind of wish it was that way, especially for like grad schools. Cause I mean, I feel like as a, as a, when I was a prospective grad student, it was like, I, okay, now I have to fit all the boxes to make sure that I check the, the boxes because I need to be a fit for their program. Um, but I kind of wish, I, you know, in hindsight, I could go back and be like, well, no, I mean, yes, I need to fit in their program, but also how does their program fit my needs in what, I need to do. So, you know, increasing this dialogue and having a space where you can get info on like, hey, this program does this or suits this, or they have these professors, whatever, like this is how it will help you. It could help 
us as students sort of like interview the program um, or gather. Quite honestly, like, so my colleague, Ted Lewis, you know, I, we do everything together. We're a team and we don't want students to just tell us stuff. That's just like, Hey, like on the website, this is like, and just say, Oh, I'm interested in the checklist of stuff that it says on the website. You guys do. We don't want that. We actually don't want that. It's, it's the opposite. It's more like what we, we've just been talking about, like a mutual flow of information, a fit that works for both. And we want to know what they want to do, what their dream is, what their passion is, what they're interested in, where they see themselves, you know, why, why they want to do this, like what types of, you know, questions they, they're interested in, what their favorite books are in the field, who are scholars that they're interested in. We want to know. So from, I don't know, maybe it just, it just seems counterintuitive to have, you know, kind of like a sales pitch. We don't want that. Nobody wants that. At least I hope nobody wants that or they shouldn't want that. That's not helpful because it's about a relationship that will last hopefully throughout their professional career. And we need to be the right fit for them. And sometimes students will write in their, you know, and they'll write, oh, we want to do X, Y, Z. And it, because they feel like this pressure that they have to like address all these like checklist things that we have in our program. But then when we talk to them, you know, it's like, oh, I really want to do this. I'm like, well, that's, that's not in your statement. And that's also not what we do. We don't do that. But you know what? These are programs that do that. And these are programs that are amazing. Please, like, I hope you've applied to them. So I think like that's, that's what's hard, right, about the process is that, you know, there's like all this like mystique about it. And at the end of the day, it's just people and people that are going to be kind of in a working relationship for a long time where, you know, when you're a faculty member, like you need to support your students. You need to know where they want to go. And guess what? Usually everyone changes their mind. <laughs> the program. Everyone changes their mind. And that's okay. That's how it's supposed to happen because we are intellectual beings. We're an intellectual community. And we also are human and we live and life changes us. And we need to check in with our students. Sometimes students come in and they're like hardcore, like I want to do like, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, great. That's awesome. And then halfway through, they realize like, you know, I don't want to do that much Acadian. <laughs> okay, what are you interested in? Let's forget about the languages. Don't think about the language. What research questions are you interested in? What types of skills do you need to answer those questions? So I think like, you know, kind of what you're hitting on is less of kind of a return to the human element where this is just a job. It's about people trying to fit and match interests. And there's always an economic issue. And that is kind of like where the, the challenge comes. It's just that you know, we are like the obscure niche of the humanities. Not only is the humanities in crisis, but we're like, we're the ones that are just like, you know, like, why, why should we care about you? Well, I have a lot of reasons why you should care about what we study and what we work on. And so, especially because I do Bible. So it's like, hello, like, ooh, like there's lots of reasons why we need like, we need that context. We need it so badly. <laughs> but we are on the check on the, the kind of the chopping block. And I think that like the fear in academia in our fields about, you know, scarcity or trying to prove to the university or to administration that don't don't destroy us, like keep us alive. Maybe that's transferred to students. And maybe, you know, that's kind of where students too are now kind of freaked out. I mean, the more students I talk to, everyone is stressed out and kind of depressed about the job market, depressed about their prospects, very defeated. I understand. I totally understand. And my heart goes out to everyone. I totally get it. But we need to have hope, too, because if we don't have a little hope, then why do it? And hope sustains you. And you can't work well if you're miserable. No, it's true. I mean, and these are, you know, this is definitely hitting on like the greatest themes of of problems that academia, but also especially especially 
the ancient studies face. I mean, these are all very, very good points to hit on that I think people, they recognize it, right? But then everyone's kind of just gets this defeated. Well, I don't know how to fix it, but I'll go into it anyway, which is interesting to, to say the least, but it's very true. And I think what gets lost in the discussion about, you know, what is the right fit for you is at, you know, just the reality of people's expectations, right? There's like, oh, why did you apply to this program if they don't really have what you want to do? Oh, because it's prestigious and they have money, so they'll fund me. Okay, that's great, but it doesn't have what you want to do, so maybe it's not the right fit. The one that I was really noticing, and, and this happened because it happened to me, is I wanted to apply to certain programs, especially in undergrad, not so much grad school, because of a certain professor that I was like, oh, you know, they're really chill, they'd be a cool advisor, but they didn't do anything, anything, that I wanted to do, but I was like, it's fine. I could find something to do. And then I'll just move later into the things I'm interested in, which is a really, really bad way to go about it. Don't do that. If you're listening, you know, and it, like my own example of this, right. Is when I was coming out of high school and I really wanted to be an Egyptologist, I was like, I am going to go to UCLA and I'm going to work with Kara Cooney because I grew up watching her show and I read her books and I was like, she seems like the coolest advisor and I think it'd be just a really fun time. And then when people would start to ask me, you know, but what do you actually want to study? Do you want to do the requirements to go into Egyptology? And I was kind of like, well, as bad as it sounds, not really. I don't really want to take ancient Near Eastern languages. I think it's too hard. I grew up bilingual, but in a romance language. So I was like, I'd rather stay closer to that. And so they were like, so maybe you shouldn't go to UCLA and study with Kara. They were like, I'm sure it's a cool program, but not right for you. So no, I didn't do that. And it ended up being a really good decision because I went to where, you know, I went to University of Missouri and I did my own thing. But yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of pressure to want to go study with a certain person. Then you try to like mold yourself into something that could marginally fit the bill for why it would be a fit. Well, about Kara, Kara is, Kara, someday I hope you hear this, like just the most, the word goddess does not even like describe how amazing of a human being, just a human, just par excellence, like just the most wonderful human being on the planet. So I totally, absolutely understand. Uh, we go back uh, a ways, but yeah, it's the prestige stuff. Um, I don't know. It's, it's life, life decisions. And the truth is a lot of times too, you know, there's this whole human element of the fact that when you apply to a PhD program, you're committing to live somewhere for like six to seven. It's always like, Oh, five to six years. Yeah. But you know, it's like, Hey, that's a big chunk. And it's also like, you know, I don't want to like make assumptions, but usually like, let's just say logistically and term timeline wise, it's usually like the best part of your like twenties and thirties. <laughs> So, and that's like where there's a lot of like family decisions, like there's biology stuff. There's like also, hi, I'm a human being, want to have fun. There's all these different factors as well, right? And family stuff, it's, it gets complicated. So it's, it's, it's also, um, it's a corporate decision as well for a lot of people, you know, it's, there's other people's lives that are involved and it's part of their path and a very sizable chunk of the best, the years where they're able to do a lot of cool things. And that, that's that timeline. <laughs> so that's like, and I, I understand totally. I'm super sympathetic to just how the complexity of these types of decisions. Yeah. I mean, and it, it seems like such a, not like life or death, because that's, that's being dramatic, but it seems 
at the time you're making this decision, it seems like it's one of the biggest things where you're like, but this will set the course of my life for the for the rest of it. And if I make a wrong decision, I've screwed up somehow. And I definitely went through that. But I feel like my own trajectory is kind of proof that that's absolutely not true because when I was like, okay, so I'm not going to go to UCLA. I'm not going to study with care. I'm not going to go into Egyptology. My dream is ruined. Now I have to find the the backup, whatever will, that will make me happy. But I did my thing. I was very happy doing my thing. I went from classics into modern political science, which I thought might be an interesting, not misstep, but just an interesting way to go. And then it ended up being great because then doing what I did led me back to UCLA. And now I work in the same department basically as Kara. So I'm like, well, I got here anyway to UCLA and like, she's a colleague now. So I didn't have to come study with her. I hope that more students paths will follow thing. Ones that look like mine, not to say I have the best example, but in terms of I had to bounce around. I struggled a lot. I didn't know what the right fit was. So I had to ask twice as many questions and I did have friends who were like very driven who like went on one path and just like followed that you know I had friends I met freshman year in college and then they were classics majors in my department and now they're basically almost done or done with their PhDs and they're getting postdocs and classics and I was like okay well you were on that like singular track and that's awesome I did not do that I had to bounce around a lot and it felt like a really big struggle for a really long time and even now I still am a bit kind of like well I don't know am I am I doing the right thing am I where am I going from here man but I'm just kind of enjoying the ride there's this great uh, quote from Alice in Wonderland Lewis Carroll and it's I think like the Alice is asking the cat like where do I go and I think the cat says like wherever you go just go <laughs> like it's it's basically just like as long as you're going somewhere it's it's okay just just keep moving like it's fine yeah just don't stop right it's it's life is kind of like a game of momentum is kind of what I've felt like for my last five years at least it's just go where the momentum takes you part of the past five years was like three years of just stopping no i'm saying that you couldn't like do stuff right i mean we nobody talks about covid as much right but that was that was just yesterday i still have all the masks and i keep them out in a big like bowl in my living room just to be a jerk to like remind everyone like hi like this all happened we're still dealing with trauma from this experience like, it's okay. It's okay that we're awkward. It's okay that we're stressed. It's okay that we still, we're still dealing with it. Like, it's here. It's like the elephant in the room. You know, a lot of people died. Like, we need to remember that. Yeah, no, I think it's true. Also, that's hilarious. That's absolutely hilarious. But yes, I I agree. And 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 it's weird, though, because yeah, I, I like to say follow the momentum. But it really was like, before the pandemic hit, though, I was kind of just trying to find my footing and I mean, I landed in a job. And so I didn't feel like I had that much momentum because I was like, okay, so I'm in a job and I guess I'll be here for the next, you know, three years, whatever. And now I'm stagnant. And then it was actually because of the pandemic that the creative momentum started. I started podcasting in late 2020 and I was able to really research the right sort of grad programs for me. I was able to map out where I saw myself going. This all happened when I was stuck at home. That's what I meant. It's that you were constrained. We were all constrained, right? And so we had to like switch gears and find ways creatively to connect. And I think the only silver lining I saw was that, you know, the, a lot of times technology has different generational like hurdles. 
And I think that it that was like kind of blurred, right? Everyone of all generations like that could or that wanted to was figuring out how to do technology to stay connected. And that's kind of cool. Like in a way, like families, maybe even in some families, like I know I spoke more to, to family and friends and friends I hadn't seen in years on FaceTime and stuff. And I could have always done that. And I just didn't do it before because the absence. So, you know, we kind of created these, these pathways to, to be connected to people, which was pretty awesome. And hopefully we're keeping some of those, you know. It was really informative, actually, the pandemic, because it really helped for like building the social support team that I needed to get through my master's program, which, and I'm sure it'll be the same way for PhD program. Cause when they say, okay, find your people, find your group, cause you're going to need them because grad school is a tough nut. And then because of the pandemic, like it just forced me to really figure out, okay, how do I schedule time to talk to people? Who are my people? Who do I want to talk to and spend time with? And so having that in the pandemic and then going to grad school, I was like, oh, guess what? I know my people. I know who I want to read all the crazy drafts of my thesis when I'm going crazy. I know who I want to FaceTime when I'm ripping my hair out in stress, trying to, you know, make the deadlines. And it was a really interesting experience. So it, it actually ended up really being beneficial. All at 3am when you're eating, binge eating Doritos, that's me. <laughs> like nacho cheese Doritos, like all of them, they're gone. <laughs> and just like, hey, I'm behind on a deadline. Nom, 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 nom. I think I have a crazy idea. Nom, 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 nom. Yeah, of course. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, and then it was even better because being abroad when I'm ripping my hair out in stress, I didn't have like a lot of the American comforts and foods that I wanted. So I couldn't find my like bread and butter comfort food. So here I am trying to like try new things abroad. So, you know, I think it was a lot of eating these weird biscuit things in the UK at 4am desperately talking to, to friends being like, help me, help me. What's going on? So yeah, man, a lot of, a lot of crazy experiences, uh, were had, but you don't. And then, you know, there's this pressure that you're on the market and suddenly you're like, Whoop. um, and that's, that's the part that we really are trying to help our students is this kind of transition process from, you know, it's really fast. Like we have a really compressed three-year program of classes and our students take a lot of classes because we're kind of an old school, like rigorous language-based program. That's just what we do. It's not for everybody. It's not better or worse than anything. That's just that's just what we do. That's it. And, you know, we do a lot of like our students all take history classes, archaeology. They study with um, Dr. Marion Feldman. They take our history classes. They take a lot of classes. So it's intense. And then they have exams. And then so we, we're trying to like build in kind of uh, benchmarks through the program to help students have, you know, an idea of a dissertation to kind of like start thinking uh, and not be afraid of the topic, you know, of like creating a prospectus. And then like in the, the process when they're ABD, you know, hey, like, you know, like the writing process is very much like in a way it's kind of like an asocial process, right? Because you're just like alone a lot and you're writing and like you're writing about like ancient people that had been dead for like thousands of years. And then like you're reading scholarship of people that have like, they're just not around anymore because, you know, they're just, they passed over the other side and, and you're just like alone and it's weird. But then like you finish and then like you defend and then now it's like you have to be on a, the market quote unquote and just you know it's like about just showing who you are right and that's like a very in your face social interview it's the stuff we talked about which is a total difference like moving from jello to like a bullet train 
And that's an insane transition. That's something that's really hard to do. It's it's hard as well because it's intense. There's pressure. You know, a lot of times people, you know, have like financial, you know, concerns because, you know, it's it's just horrible. And so that's one thing. That's why, like, I've been asking these questions and I ask everyone questions. I want to know what people are going through because, you know, our question, like my question is like, hey, how can I help my students? How can I help people in my program that aren't my students? They're my, my colleague students. How can I just be part of their support team? You know, y'all are running a marathon and we're kind of like your support team. And like, sometimes we have to give you goop, you know, goop. It's that gross stuff. It's disgusting, but like you need it. I think you need it. Like they all drink it. So I'm assuming they need it, but like, you need it, right. And then sometimes it's like, Hey, like, I don't want to stop. And it's like, you need to stop. You need to drink some water. Like just no, or, you know, sometimes there's something that they don't see like, Oh, like, you know, your shoelace isn't tied. It's like, Hey, this is something you need to watch out for. Or, you know, Hey, like, here's a heads up. Like there's this, this hurdle that's coming up ahead. So it's like, we need to like know what the landscape's like. And we also have to have more of a bird's eye perspective to understand like, you know, where they're going, what they want to do, how we can help them. And the only way we can do that is to talk, to talk to them, to talk to other people, to keep like a flow of dialogue. That's very realistic and open and transparent about our, our jobs, about our profession. Yeah, no, it's, it's so true. I think having good mentors is important, but then also having the other people who aren't maybe directly involved with what you're doing, having them invested in care about how you progress through is is really important obviously there's so many issues and and things to talk about with the grad school process but during our conversation there's there's a question that has been buried in the back of my mind that has just been burrowing forward so i do want to pivot us a little bit because i know and i'm very excited because you're one of maybe two people i think i've spoken to who do hebrew bible stuff so not many but because of this, I need to ask, does anyone or did, are people coming and wanting to study either the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew Bible in like a cross-cultural context with Egypt because of the Prince of Egypt movie? I'm really curious. The songs are really good, though. I know I have a four-year-old, right? And like, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like, it's beautiful music. It's amazing. You know, it's like what you want to listen to in traffic when somebody just threw like a slushy at your car and is cussing you out and giving you the finger and you can just put that on. And then like, you just feel like you've got this. <laughs> like It's like very like emotional, but inspiring. It has like all the right cues. That has never happened, but it is Bible. So a lot of people do come to uh, study that, that this kind of group of texts and, you know, um, which again, extends to different, you know, like later period stuff as well through the framework of their personal life and their personal background, cultural background, religious background, and, you know, to kind of tackle um, these languages like, you know, Aramaic, Hebrew, um, even, you know, kind of studying, um, you know, connections with Egypt. There's like a whole branch of scholarship that does that as well. Like, you know, actually, you know, you're at UCLA, right? You know, Aaron Burke directed, co-directed um, the site, at, um, the art excavations at Jaffa. And, you know, I was there, I worked there and we worked on, you know, an Egyptian fortress at, you know, in the Southern Levant. Like I work on the Amara letters. I work on interconnections between, you know, like Egyptian officials and administrators and local scribes and kind of local elites. 
So there's a very rich, you know, contact between I mean, the first writings, the first the first ex- evidence of economic trend. Like it's just so interconnected, this region, and it's 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 just right there. So I haven't heard anyone ask me about the Prince of Egypt, but people do, and sometimes people too will, you know, in their statements mention like, oh, like I started getting interested in the historicity of the Exodus, and then I just decided I don't want to talk about that or learn about that. I want to do actual like look at actual like cross cultural exchanges and look at language or look at you know late Bronze Age administration, blah blah blah, or look at you know, biblical texts that use like Egypt metaphorically, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, we get a range of things. And I think the field is, there's been a lot of emphasis in like the first 50 years of, or whatever, 70 years of the 20th into the 21st century, whatever, in the connections between um, the Levant and Mesopotamia, northern Syria, Egypt. So the interesting thing is like Egypt's there, like we are there, like we're neighbors, it's right there. but because of the, again, going back to graduate training, because of the time crunch, it's very rare to find people that are trained in Hebrew Bible that have advanced Egyptian. I have Egyptian. I studied Egyptian at UCLA. I am not like an advanced Egyptian scholar. I didn't have time because I was taking Hittite, Sumerian, Akkadian, Arabic, Aramaic. Like I was taking a lot of stuff too, other languages. So I think hopefully what would be cool, like people like you or people that are interested in maybe that these types of questions would be to have, you know, kind of maybe more of kind of a, a connection between Egyptology and people that do the Levant that are more integrated into Egyptology, not just kind of sampling, you know, topical information or data, but actually like tr- cross train in both. And that's something I think that's much rarer. And that's something that I actually have. Um, Thomas Schneider and I had a, like an email exchange about this. Like I think it was like two or three years ago. It was before no, it was before COVID, where we were just talking about this issue. Where you know, like what can we do to get our fields to be more interconnected in the right way? Right now, one of my um, right now currently like one of my students is like taking like Egyptian, taking Coptic, doing all that work, and also taking Akkadian. And we're so proud of our student. I'm not going to say names because of privacy and stuff, but like I, like that's wonderful. Like students that want to do that, like apply to Johns Hopkins. We want you. <laughs> that's like that's like, that's it. Absolutely, that's what we want. Um, and but it does take extra work because you're mastering a whole different writing system with different phases of language. And, you know, the Egyptian languages are quite, you know, the, the Egyptian dialects are quite different, you know, um, than like West Semitic or, you know, even East Semitic. So the buy-in is, is is high. Yeah. I mean, obviously as someone who really likes and, and likes to stay in the ancient world, to me, yes, all this like interdisciplinary stuff, it makes sense. I'm like, yeah, Egypt is right there. It's so close, but we don't have... We don't have a lot of people who do both. So it's it's quite interesting, but also then recognizing that all of sort of ancient Mesopotamia is also very close. They're, they're all very interconnected. So you could kind of pick where or what you want to cross over with. But I wonder, though, for people who aren't so married to the ancient world, I'm kind of interested in, in like larger trends as well. So, you know, is there a large percentage of of your students who will come and take classes with you and stuff, but that the, their intent is actually not to go into more sort of ancient culture studies, but they, they want to take the experience of studying maybe the origins of like the Hebrew Bible and then take that and do like very contemporary religious studies. Is that like a bigger share or is it kind of mixed? It just depends. So um, my graduate classes, the buy-in is language because they're all in a primary source language. 
Um, so, for example, you know, this year I'm teaching a course on um, Northwest Medic uh, inscriptions and dialects, you know, where they're going to be reading text in, you know, kind of Old Hebrew, Aramaic, the Phoenician Punic, and different like Transjordanian inscriptions. Um, you have to have like a core base to do that. You can't otherwise. Um, you know, I'm teaching a class on Canaanite Akkadian, which is, you know, kind of like its own beast, which I love. But it's like you need to have Akkadian. And you also need to know like West Semitic or pick it up. So those classes, I think, are less user friendly for undergraduate students or for people that just want like a cursory access to the ancient world. But really great example. Um, we also offered classes. So um, this past spring, you know, just now, just recently, I taught co-taught a class with my colleague and friend Sam Spinner on monumentality. And it was thematic based. So it was all English. You know, I think we had like maybe a French article or something, but it was for undergraduate students, advanced undergraduate students. And the topic was the meaning of monuments, monumentality in the ancient world and so today and today, today's debates about monuments, counter monuments, taking down monuments, moving them, changing them, recontextualizing them. Um, it was a class that kind of uh, deconstructed monumentality. And the students there were not experts in the ancient world. They just were interested in the idea and the topic, like what makes something monumental? And as part of the class, you know, I focused on case studies from the ancient world. And my colleague, you know, went more contemporary, also a lot of Holocaust um, period, World War II, um, post-World War, but also um, topics about, you know, like monumentality and text, right? So it was just very, you know, just kind of um, different ways, different applications of this type of theoretical framework. And at the end of the class, our students created, they were worked together to create a monument and designed for a monument. And it had nothing to do with the ancient world. But because the theme was so kind of, I think, translatable and accessible and interesting to the students, they were able to apply it in a way that meant something to them. And I think that what's nice about those types of classes is that they give people a new perspective on the world. And once they forget all the information we teach them, and they don't remember like the archaeological, you know, strata and the date and like what type of soil or like whatever crap that like are making them learn for an exam. And they leave with the idea, they leave with the principle that they extract from it. Um, and that's that's when we're successful. It's exactly those moments. And so going back to your point about Bible, um, you know, I like I like had taught classes on you know origin stories from the ancient world. And the students are interested in religion, they're interested in literature. They don't know anything about the ancient world, and that's fine. It doesn't matter because we can talk, we can read the text and talk about, you know, different themes, um, similarities, differences, and you know, and then we can rent out the auditorium and watch Noah, <laughs> or whatever that movie came out, which is what we did, <laughs> and it was amazing. You know, this is great. I won that monumentality class. That is something I would have died to take. Also, because that is kind of like exactly what I want to. It, that's like a massive part of what I want to do my PhD on, but it, th mine would veer more into modern nationalism studies, but nationalism connected to heritage sites and cultural heritage is literally what I want to do my PhD in. So I'm like, wow, I wish I could have taken that class. So very jealous of your students. If you're a student at Hopkins, you are very lucky. We are lucky to have them. We had, the students were amazing. One of our um, group of students created uh, a monument commemorating COVID that was just brilliant with chairs that were six feet apart and desks. 
And it was kind of also like for the future, because we're going to have probably another global pandemic. Unfortunately, this is just reality. Like it's going to keep happening until we're connected. This is just going to keep happening. Please no one hate me or write mean things about me for saying this. I don't want these things to happen. Just realistically, this might happen again, or there might be another circumstance where students on campuses can't engage. And so it's kind of was like a lingering monument as a reminder, and but also kind of as a, a monument to the resilience of people who found ways to meet in freezing cold snow, sit six feet apart, and still have human moments of connection. So it was just like a really beautiful project, like really lovely. So I was felt very honored to have them in my class. Oh, okay. Well, that's really cool. I love how creative people are. But also, because you have the chance to teach all these unique classes, I'm kind of like, wow, one day I feel like you should just teach a whole class on Prince of Egypt or or any other reception class that does you know I don't know like maybe you could create a whole class out of like exodus gods and kings or something Schneider Tom Schneider teaches like a class that's amazing that has like the reception of like Cleopatra in Hollywood it's just a beautifully cool like reception of Egypt in cinema and popular popular culture it's phenomenal I can't do that for Egypt because I, I don't have the, I'm not an Egyptologist and I bow down to all of my colleagues and friends who are Egyptologists. I bow down. For Bible, that would be interesting because there's a lot of amazingly hilarious stuff out there, like Charlton Heston in like a thong with a gold watch, <laughs> like Brenner. Like there's some interesting iconic moments there, yes. But you could shoehorn like biblical stuff into anything. Like, so a good friend of mine who's actually an Assyriologist uh, but she got her bachelor's in, in classics. So we we kind of talk on that wavelength. We just watched this god-awful movie called Odysseus Voyage to the Underworld. It is loosely supposed to be based on the Odyssey. It's not, spoiler alert, it's not at all. But the entire thing has massive biblical references to it for some unknown reason. So instead of being based on the Greek in any way the entire premise spoilers 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 if you don't want spoilers skip this now but the entire premise is they have to get what they're calling politely the hellfire cross and i was like this is very biblical very biblical there's a hilarious movie called ball storm god and it came out like i don't even know when but it's based on a really miserable book that I found somewhere and started reading. And then I just like started dry heaving and I had to stop. It's really disturbing too. It's like really messed up. Like I don't recommend it. And it's kind of like the same, like kind of hodgepodge of like these Sumerian tablets, but they're like written in Aramaic and they're size of dinner plates and made out of like chalky, like just dirt craziness. But yeah, basically what you're saying is that Hollywood needs to consult us in a more responsible way and we can still have fun and make it crazy. I like that. Great idea. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. Cause I'm like, I don't know at this point, since I'm very unfamiliar with what my ancient Hebrew colleagues do. I mean, I was like, y'all do great things. I just don't actually know what, cause so many, so much is either interdisciplinary or mixed with something else. And then I tend to focus on the other thing, but yeah. So like what are good movies to watch if you're interested in like ancient hebrew civilization other than some of these if you watch prince of egypt it's like yeah it's a story about the jews but you're also like yeah but it's like egypt so if you like egypt you'd watch that same thing for like exodus gods and kings so i'm like is there anything you can do like reception wise that's not we don't know and i'm the worst person to ask because i have like really horrible tastes in media and like everyone who 
I don't, anyway, I just have like the worst taste possible and I don't like do work stuff. I just do fun stuff. So unfortunately I can't answer that question. I have no idea. And I'm also like off the grid. So I find out about things 10 years later. But that's how you get your work done. You know what? I was like academics, we have to bear our heads in, in books and other things to even get stuff done. So we can all be forgiven for not being up on our on our latest media reception thing. So movie-wise, that has nothing to do with the Bible at all, except for there's like Satan. And there, it's kind of like, there's like vaguely New Testament apocalyptic stuff, but it's just don't watch it for that. Keanu Reeves, Constantine. Everyone makes fun of me for this movie. It's amazing. Like it has the coolest portrayal of Satan that I've ever seen coming out of the ceiling barefoot with like tar off his feet. Like just just amazing like really just crazy town fantastic oh okay well i i want to check out all the bad movies i wanna... just got read everyone hates it except for me there's like three people that like it i'm a diehard keanu reeves fan love 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 everything well that's like people hating on him for the bram stoker dracula where they were like oh he can't act or he can't say the lines in this weird accent and i'm like but i love that film it's fantastic i don't know i just you know, I, I, I will keep striving because I love a, a big thing of my research now is I, I'm all about reception studies just because I'm interested. But I would like to say I would love to find a film that gets the Bible that's not either a Mel Brooks film because I, I know he did like History of the World Part One or whatever, which is essentially like the Bible, but in parody fashion. I mean, it's great. There's a lot of confessional productions. So that's the thing with Bible, right? You know, usually there's an angle. It's not a neutral topic for people. So, I mean, I'm sure that there are many kind of, you know, kind of religious programming, confessional-based programming, or confessional-funded, made-for-a-public-audience type of thing. I, I don't personally watch that stuff because I watch other things. So I can't speak to that, but I'm sure that, you know, this is something that you will find that's, that's there. Yeah. You know, I, and it's true. Cause when you deal with anything that deals with ancient religion or a, whatever. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to find anything unbiased. I just, I'm like, you know, I'd like to find something that's not like passion of the Christ or something. I'd like to watch something different. That's not my jam, but one day, maybe maybe people will make something fun and nice without an agenda, which is maybe being way too optimistic, but I'm an optimist, so. The Eternals has a beautiful, by the way, like the, the Ishtar Gates, like has an amazing scene where it's like, it's very beautiful. Like it's very pretty and there's cool like monsters too. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. No, I do love that film. That, yeah, I, 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 I do say I, I like the uh, the sequences in the ancient world best. And I believe that Martin Worthington is the person that did the tech for that, like the consulting. So that was like vetted. Like. Media stuff. I hope it gets better, but I'm not going to get my hopes up too much about it. Again, we could go on and on into all the different reception ways, but we would both probably die of old age if we were trying to cover all of them. So there are kind of three questions I kind of ask at the end of the interview portion. And the first one is when you were a student, you can choose undergrad or grad school. Did you attend office hours? Unless I had to, then no. Now, reverse the role and being an educator yourself now, if you had to give a small like one minute pitch to students about why they should go to office hours, what would you say? Uh, I'm going to uh, dig a little deeper. Do you want them to ask 
an academic question, a life question, any question? I want them to ask a question about academics. And I think that a lot of times students feel pressure to come to office hours as like a checklist thing. It's like a grade thing. And, you know, I think it just depends on the school and the program, but we're a tiny little program and students don't need to come to office hours to talk to us. Like, so I think like, it also depends on what it is. Like when I said, no, I didn't go to office hours. I was like one of, I think I was the only undergraduate at UCLA in the Near Eastern Studies program where there was like three of us. We didn't need to go to office hours because we were in contact with our advisors. We were in contact with professors. It was a very close knit community. So I think like, I think office hours can be something that is kind of, sometimes people will enforce it and say, you have to go, or sometimes students will feel like, oh, I have to meet with my advisor or meet with blah, 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 just because I have to show my face. And I think like, hey, they're busy. They've got stuff going on. Students have a lot on their plates. You know, like, I don't want to add like a requirement to people, right? So instead of like office hours, it's just kind of, hey, conversation connection. Like my students, like they need to meet with me. They meet, we meet. It's not during my office hours. We just, we just set up a meeting. You know, it's not like a fixed thing. It's more like of a fluid kind of conversation that's like ongoing throughout the year. Um, And I like students to come with a question that's like, you know, something specific, Um, you know, that this is like their time, right? To ask what they want to ask. And I think it's kind of nice to prepare to have like a question, a series of questions, you know, like I like to usually if students do come to my more formal office hours, you know, I like, I like to, you know, like have our computers out, right? So we can look stuff up. I have the printer down the office, we print stuff out, you know, if they have questions about like academics or professional stuff, like I'm the director of graduate studies, like I like to to have like a clear game plan for like, hey, like, what do you need? How can I help you? Let's go, let's do this. Let's be on, let's not be distracted by stuff. Let's just focus. Like, what do you need help with? Like, what are we going to do to help you? Let's get this done. So in a way it's kind of like, um, like to have very like kind of a targeted moment of like, all right, let's work together on this issue. Like, what do you need help with? Let's go. Um, and that means like that they need to like know what they want to ask. And that sometimes I usually will anticipate and say like, hey, like what, what type, what range of questions so I can do on my end prepare, right? Because how can I help somebody if I'm not prepared? I need to be prepared too. It's not just about them. It's about me being prepared, you know? So like, I'll try to figure out, like sometimes it's like, you know, something about classes or something, you know, like an application for something or, you know, and I like to know what it is ahead of time. I like to, you know, like if they're applying for a program or they have questions about like, you know, language abroad stuff or, you know, questions about like, hey, like, you know, what program should I apply for or how should I spend my summer or what range of classes should I take? You know, I like to know like, okay, cool, like send me like the classes you've taken in the past or, you know, send me like kind of a list of places that interest you or send me some programs. Let me do research on my end so that I can be informed so I can respect their time because everyone's really busy these days. You know, students are so busy. They have so much going on. And I think part of what's hard I've noticed too is that post-COVID, I think that like people are still playing catch up. You've experienced this too, right? Like people are still... So like, I don't want to waste their time. I want to like, boom, let's get this done. Let's, let's figure this out. Yeah, no, there's, it's, it's interesting because there is like a a bit of a delay where I've had all these questions or ideas bubbling and I do want to get to them. But also I think because of the pandemic, well, for me at least, there was always that sense of, yes, I want to get this done and move forward. But also I've been missing this human connection. So it is kind of nice to just also chat about the different possibilities, right? Like, oh, well, if I didn't take this path or did do this thing, you know, what would happen? That's part of like the exchange, you know, and sometimes too, like it's nice to chart it out on the board or, you know, and I also like, I am very intentional in my classes to always spend like the first five minutes checking in with everyone. So we also do have kind of like built into every single one of my classes, 
like a moment where we all talk and kind of catch up and like, okay, cool. Like what's going on? Like what's happening? Where are you? How is it going? Like we do that in all of my classes with my graduate students. So in a way, like we kind of have the the human personal like kind of connection moment, like that's in all the classes. So that's already, you know, that's kind of built in because I need to know. Sometimes I really need to know because they have like a lot of work for other classes too. And I need to know like, okay, cool. Like what's your load like for the rest of the semester? Like this week, what do you have going on? Like, let's talk, let's touch base, you know? Oh, that's good. I wish more professors did that, honestly. I mean, yeah, people will ask, but it's kind of like a, you good? You good? Cool. Moving on. So it's often pretty short. So I, I like that. I, I would appreciate that in a professor coming and, and, and doing that. So, yeah. So anyway, at the end of the podcast, I ask each guest if they will read Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. And at the end of this, if you could just give us your, your quick thoughts on kind of, you know, what, is, what do you think this poem means? What is it? What is it trying to say? Why do people kind of look at this poem and think it's, it's deep and it's really cool, not just some superficial little thing that they ignore? Why does it stick with people? Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. People. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, Near them on the sand, half-sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculpture well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my work, see mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of the colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 
So I'm going to cite my friend and colleague, Sam Spinner. And we actually taught this poem and we talked about the reception of the poem. And we talked about, you know, in our class of monumentality, Sam had this like really interesting session and kind of discussion that we kind of built in on the monumentality of ruins and wreckage and like the absence and break and decay. And we kind of, he had this really wonderful session where he kind of uh, also looked at the Berlin Wall and like, like what is so like, you know, it was kind of, a, 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 it was a, an administrative thing, a political thing. It was a barrier. A lot of people died, you know, trying to climb it and like, and then it was destroyed and it was kind of the destruction was kind of an active performance of counting your monumentality. But then, you know, certain areas where there's pieces of the wall left in the wreckage and this the poem, I think what's really lovely, interesting is how, um, what's evocative is the, the idea of destruction and the imagination that the destroyed, broken, decayed wreck is still so monumental, grand, interesting, old, you know, um, antique that captures the imagination and harnesses, you know, harnesses kind of the, the the focus of people that creates an audience and captures people to go to this, this, this kind of structure, this, this, this statue, this thing. And then the imagination fills in the blanks and kind of reconstructs the origins. And I think that, you know, like the, the, the imaginative quality of monumentality and how uh, my friend Timothy Hogue, um, who's just was, um, he's a new uh, faculty member at Penn and Hebrew Bible and Northwest Semitics, has a really beautiful article that just came out that talks about monumentality. And mon monumentality is the quality of making people think. It's a quality that doesn't have, it's not the checklist of big, fancy, you know, expensive. It's monumentality is, you know, a conceptual cognitive process that people think they gravitate towards spaces, things, and structures. And then they ask questions and they circle it with their body and they fill in gaps. They fill in time work. They talk. Monuments, monumental things generate discourse and talk. And it, what's interesting here as well is like you could see that the whole discourse where first you meet a traveler, right? So there's kind of this engagement with another person and there's talk about this, this kind of monument that's far away in a distant place. And then the monument itself speaks out, right? Through the text itself about what it is supposed to represent. So this whole idea of monumentality mediates discourse about time, about space, about material, about importance, about human experience. And it makes people think. Oh, I couldn't put it better myself. I mean, this poem has been my favorite since I first read it. I think I want to say I read it in like eighth grade, but maybe it was high school. I don't remember. But it definitely struck a chord just because of the evocative nature of what it's describing. But also it really stuck out as a memento mori for me. I was like, oh, yes, we will die. We will die. And what's left of us? What are we doing? But obviously it goes so much deeper. It's a political statement on Shelley's part. Yes, it was a statue of Ramesses II. And then he was also writing this at a time where he knew that this statue had been taken from Egypt and was coming to the British Museum. It, it was a very interesting time when he was writing. And so it's so multifaceted. I do love thinking about it mo first and foremost as, yes, it is a statement on the ephemeral nature of power and legacy um, which I really love thinking about. And because these themes just pop out so much, yes, monumentality plays into it as, as being a physical thing, not just a, an idea as well. The last question I like to ask every guest on the podcast really is if you think about our contemporary, you know, culture, civilization right now, do we have like a modern equivalent 
to Ozymandias? Do we have something that we think is amazing and great and will last forever? Um, and this could be anything. Like I'm the cuspy. Like I think I don't really remember the generations, but I think I'm gen. I'm a millennial. Is that what it counts? I don't know. Anyway, I'm the generation that like it started. Like I remember getting the first computer and being plugged on, and it changed everything about how we live, about how we hold our bodies, everything about how we talk, we connect, we think, we do commerce, every single aspect of who we are: health, the body, diet, food. We get food delivered. Everything has changed. Everything. Like everything, every romance, love, meeting, human connections, like everything, everything, dealing with civic duties, everything has changed because of the internet. It is a monumental thing. Nobody owns it. That's crazy. Like it's just there. We don't, I don't understand it. And it's changed everything. No, it's very true. And and then the scary part to think of it, right, is that the internet itself lives on a on big servers, right? Locked away in like Silicon Valley or whatever. And so if, if those servers were to go out, when people say like, Oh, don't put stuff on the internet. Cause it's there forever. I'm like, but is it? Cause if the internet were to go out like tomorrow on all these, on, on these like few select servers that only a few people have access to everything that's online will be lost. So actually, I don't know if it's that permanent, even though we think it might be. So I think the internet is a great and perfect answer for modern Ozymandias. I, I love when people think of the internet because it's it's true, man. I, I can't tell you how many times we have people who say, man, the internet is like the greatest thing ever invented. It allows me to do X, Y, and Z, but they're also like, I hate the internet because I can't or, you know, X, Y, Z happens. What is the weird, or what, what are like two, maybe two of like the most unexpected answers to that question? Ooh, I, that's hard because I've had so many. I, I would say maybe somebody said capitalism and I was like, oh, Okay, that's interesting. I'll go with it. And then someone said, I think someone just said cell phones. I've had a lot of Trumps and other political figures like Putin's. I've had a lot of uh, physical buildings cited. But I, I do prefer when people take it more in the theoretical realm of ideas like like capitalism or in big, big structures like the Internet. I think those are just sort of the more entertaining ones to think about. I think someone said photos somewhere down the line and I really had to sort of wrap my mind around that. Cause I was like, well, what do you, what do you mean by like photos, like physical photos, digital photos? And they just said photos in general. Cause I mean, they connected it to like, you know, in every sort of zombie apocalypse movie, the first thing that people take when they flee their homes is like the, the photos, the family photos, or, you know, in any kind of alien invasion situation, I think a lot of times the first thing that people leave or they look at or find are photos and they try to work backwards. And, you know, so they, they I think someone made a great argument for why they're kind of like statues. Like, you know, if, if our civilization sort of died tomorrow and then aliens came and they saw like Disney World and they saw like a massive statue of Mickey Mouse, they were like going to think that we were an entire race of people who worshipped giant mice so you know like they kind of related it to to that so yeah i think i really liked um it's not often that i'm stumped at the end of episodes so this is kind of a fun new one anyway i know you said you're not on social media but if people wanted to find your your work where can they do that do you have an academia page or i have an academia page and i'm on the johns hopkins um website for near eastern studies a-l-i-c-m-a-n-d-e-l-l Alice Mandel. Cool. Well, we will, or I will link it in the show notes. So if people want to shoot you an email, maybe talk about coming to Hopkins or 
you know, asking about a book or something, um, they can, they can find you there. So thank you so much for, for joining me today. I, I know it's been a, a really interesting, wide ranging conversation. I think we touched on some really great things and would, would love to, uh, to do it again sometime. I feel like there's so much we didn't get to cover. Thank you so much. And can you send me the link to the really bad movie that you suggested? Yes, I absolutely will. Because everyone should watch this it's terrible anything 23 percent on rotten tomatoes like i'm down like i love it <laughs> for sure for sure will do will do thank you so much for having me and thank you all for uh, listening trireme transit is now departing ancient office hours next stop is present ponderings Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.